Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Michael, and welcome to another IRC Book Club podcast. And for the fourth and final time, we're going to be covering Selling to the Sea Suite by Nicholas A.C. Reed and Stephen J. Bistritz. Before we interview the author on the show, uh, Mike, how have we been getting on with this one so far? Let me start first, Jonathan, by asking, how are you? I'm all right, thanks. No, the book's good, yeah. <laughs> So how are you? I like this book. I've got to say, it's dense. Do you know one of the things I really like about it? Is it really sticks to its theme. Yeah. Selling to the C-suite. There are eight chapters of how to sell to the C-suite. Do you know what else you know, I... a lot of the books deviate uh, and around they get a bit bored of them. This one is dense, but it sticks to that theme. Well, very good. a lot of the books we've read on Book Club are actually an amalgamation of blog posts. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, a lot. Uh, and I think this is actually a purpose-written book with a purpose. Um, and he does, he sticks to the theme. The other thing I like about this, and you and I are both very similar on this, is this is full of practical stuff. Well, the appendix. I mean, we're going to review the appendix today. Yeah, I mean, we're That's on... actually how good it is. We're, we're on page 143 here. The book finishes on page 190-odd. But actually, the book finishes another 50-something pages I mean, the there list, off. We've not discussed the, the reading list. Is it's actually one of the best. I actually made a note that it's one of the best recommended reading lists of any of the books I've ever seen in the sales profession. Yeah, this actually. person is clearly a salesperson. A student of the art. A student of the craft. Anyway, so let's talk about Chapter 7. How to Create Value for the C-Suite. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of book club is, you must always talk about book club. Second rule of book club is, tell everyone about book club. Yeah, so we've got our first page of nonsense. Then we've got structuring the meetings with the executive. And if you go to, there is a template in Appendix B. See, executive level meeting planner. That template in Appendix B is excellent. Yeah, It's not good, Jonathan. It's excellent. So he starts off with, salespeople who ask the right questions to uncover problems impress senior executives. Yes, I underline that. I, I sort of get that. And I think it's right. You know, if you're creating value, a lot of it is about the questions you you ask. I put here, it's not about the right questions. It's not an Xbox game. It's not XXY, left stick, left stick, right stick. It's more about, can you play what's in front of you with your questioning? And I did. I do think, I do wish you'd made a bit more of a, a distinction. And he does sort of slightly distinguish it down here with layers of, he says it's more about layers of questions. Mm. But what I don't like the idea of, and I, I did push back on it a little bit in earlier episodes of the show on this particular book is the thought of canned questioning mm, I don't agree with that I, I think it, you, you, you've said that a few times yeah you've but got then, to play what's in front of you but then it does depend on his questions doesn't it whilst we're on this topic because for example I think a psychologist will have about four or five questions that then they use you know as their staple questions like you'd have staple food in your cooking cupboard yeah yeah, yeah. rather than have you know lengthy pre-planned ones um, 
So, he's and then he's st- structuring the meeting with the executive. I love this framework on on page uh, figure seven point one on page one four five. He actually gives a structure to a sales appointment. Yeah, and then he goes on to explain it in the next few pages. Uh, and he breaks it down, and he even has a pie chart on, on the graphic of how much of the meeting should be taken up by each part of the structure. Yes, it's excellent. And uh, and uh, under the assumption of a one-hour diarised meeting. And I, 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 in a way, some people say, well, that's a bit facile. But I think, actually, that's really good. I agree. A really good The biggest chunk of his pie chart is issues and implications. Yeah. That's a good place to sit. Yes. Very much so. Very much so. And then he does get into a a little bit of uh, issues and implications. And I've written here, spin is still the best questioning technique, I think, for a salesperson. I completely agree. In a tactical selling situation, I think spin with a bit of NLP from the language. Yeah. And And he gets into that here. You know, this is a very spin question. What are the consequences if you don't solve the problem? Yeah. What are the implications of that? I think that's their key questions, aren't they? And then he talks the about the. What I didn't ne- like actually was what three things are you not doing today that would help you resolve the problem? Bit canned. It's not just that. Oh, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask three questions at once. Yeah. You, 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 you're be very poor, you're breaking it into a lot of different parts, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Um, and then he starts talking about. Uh, the next bit, which is in terms of value, in the life cycle of a client, there are three times when you should sell your value. So what he's saying is actually value is something that goes through your relationship and your life cycle with the client. Yes. What do you make of all that? I like it. I, I, I think, as I've said, you know, in previous weeks, um, a lot of people will talk about selling to C-suite. This book exemplifies the fact that they aren't capable of it and don't do it. Because the ones are, you know, not many people are actually capable of this, I don't think. And the one that you hear a lot is value proposition. This guy People talk about value propositions. We've got a solid value proposition. Yes. It's just a throwaway bullshit thing to say. Isn't it just? When you now that, this guy writes about value page 151, that's a value, value proposition. I actually wrote, that's a value proposition. Exactly. Um, what, um, what you most, you, I can see you've circled it. Yeah. There's this paragraph. It's very difficult to understand because he uses Z and Y and X. And yes, there's no point in us reading it out no, no, to no. you. But actually, if you replace Z and Y and X with your product and their needs, that's a value proposition. Well, people use this phrase, well, that company has a solid value proposition. I feel like saying why. Oh, go on. What is it? Yeah. What is it? Because you know, you know you're going to lose everybody. Yeah. All right. What exactly precisely is their value proposition? And to whom? What? So that's a value proposition to everybody all-encompassing. <laughs> and it, it becomes an all-encompassing point. He's saying a value proposition is based on a genuine, well, he, he, he talks about a genuine understanding of you want to do Z, which we can deliver at a cost of Y, this will reduce current costs by X, and he goes on and on and deeper and deeper. And you look at it... It's very factual, related fact, to their uh, yes. needs, based on what we can do. Of, this is the real value you will get from doing business with us. Yeah, yeah. And how it will filter down across layers within the business. It's not just a throwaway phrase for, yeah, buy our product, it's really cool. You know what's interesting? On page 152, he goes, His executives told us that while millions of proposals are sent around the world each year, few of them actually propose anything. I think that's brilliant, oh, yeah. I just couldn't be more accurate than that. We're doing a little bit of stuff on with, with a different thing and, and uh, at the minute. And uh, as it happens, somebody sent me um, the presentation. And the presentation doesn't actually at any point really identify the need. 
It's just, I mean, it looks beautiful. It's a beautiful template, great graphics, but actually at no point when you read it do you think, that actually doesn't actually answer the question. It's just loads of stuff and about how good we are and how about our projects and blah, blah, blah. And what this guy's saying is he's saying, he doesn't say this, by the way, he said, if I had a big, thick, glossy, beautifully produced proposal and a one-liner that nailed somebody, but actually the one-liner was actually accurate, I'd choose the one-liner. Simple enough. Don't you think a lot of our candidates and clients are full of hyperbole that don't mean anything? It's a bit like putting interests on a CV. Oh, that's a whole other conversation. Interests on a CV, should they or shouldn't they? But, but if you think about a CV as a value proposition... Oh, no, the, the, the thing that gets me on CVs, Michael, I'm not you, but the thing that gets me on CVs is the opening statement of people's CVs. A I dedicated, can't, committed problem like solver. A dedicated, committed problem... I, I mean, literally, I could go on about this for months. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a... Pro- literally, if you, if you set me off... I'll still be sat what here you, at two quickly, o'clock quickly, in the morning. What pictures on CVs? Oh. Unless, unless you're unbelievably beautiful, do not do it. Fair enough. Go on, what page are you on now? Because I'm, I'm waiting to get to page 159, actually. 154. Yeah. So he breaks this down, doesn't he, into different levels. Well, he's got a beauty, hasn't he? He creates a, a Venn diagram. Of? Venn, uh, well, it uses two squares. And he said, he calls it the value nexus. This is page 157. Yeah. He said, on one box, you've got the client's breakthrough initiative. Yeah. On the other box, you've got you, your company, and your solution. The overlapping area is your specific business value. And how it overlaps the client's breakthrough initiative. He says, that's what you should be talking to yeah. people about. And he's saying here, you know, your customer-focused value proposition will then answer three questions. One, what's important to the customer? Two, how do we create value for the client? Address this question by describing how you, your company, and your solution can help in both a qualitative and quantitative way. And three, how can we demonstrate our capability? And then he actually comes up, he gives a couple of examples of some of the templates that are at the back of the book. I think figure 7.4 is a beauty. I'm going to use that. Me too, definitely. I will definitely be using that. So I'll read it out. It says... You should be capable of, describe the impact, by monetary units or percentage, through the ability to, describe new solution, this will require an investment of, state the cost of the solution, which will be returned within, estimate the time frame for the return. I mean, it's just an absolute beauty, that. It's, so, it's very elegant, that. It's superb. And then he says, you put a credible reference to your value proposition with one additional sentence. We recently implemented a similar solution at Company X, who achieved and have the specific savings achieved. That's yeah. a value proposition. Yeah. That says that's what you get. Now, actually, how many of the people that we deal with actually do that? I don't think many do. And then he goes on, uh, and then he goes on in reality to Excuse give several, you know, he really rams home with, with several examples. And then the value statement. The third time you talk to the client about value is after he has purchased your solution and you're now his account manager. I think this is a really interesting one because it, kind of merges into the next chapter as well. He talks about the, the value statement. I think a lot of this now is about the rise of the uh, the uh, CSM. Yes, yeah, so they've got a big role to play in that, I think. Well, it's it, uh, because particularly because we've got this software as a service driven world and where a world where customers can in reality leave at the drop of a hat. Yes. And the days of these big long contracts are getting more and more numbered, you know, lots of people are doing software deals. Yeah, we've got several suppliers. We're working on a monthly rolling deal. Mm, mm. So, th- therefore, um, we've got one supplier, you know, we give them, it's not a massive amount, we give them a few hundred quid every month for, for this particular product. 
but they're brilliant at customer success. Yeah. And they're good at benefits realisation and they're all over me all the time. Are you using this feature? Are you using that feature? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? I noticed you've not been using this for a while. Whereas if I'm signing a three-year deal, I don't have to ram home my value statement quite as much, do I? Exactly. So I think the world's changed in that respect. Because even in the last two, three years, it's only the last two, three years, we've seen the rise of the CSM as a position, really. Absolutely. Formal value reviews, great idea. I doubt anyone's going to do it. I wonder if people do. I would imagine if you're a true account manager in a true account management job, you probably are doing formal value reviews. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Chapter eight, cultivating loyalty at the C-suite. Uh, he, he does. I think it's in here or maybe it's in this chapter, chapter eight, where he does talk about the dichotomy of account manager, quote unquote, and how in reality most account managers are just glorified new business salespeople with a small portfolio of accounts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And how antithetic that is to actually true loyalty building. But that goes back to the whole point about having true customer success managers. We've got that client in London that are an analytics vendor. Mm. They really do have customer success managers whose job it is to deliver benefits realisation, ensure customer happiness, ensure widespread adoption of the technology, and then land and expand. Well, I've got a client at the minute that's recruiting for an account manager to manage two finance accounts. He doesn't want a salesperson to do the job. He wants a project manager from the finance market. Who's going to look after the customer? Yeah, and I said to him, I said, aren't, aren't you bothered him? You know, about the fact they'll never held the target. He said, no. Don't care. He said, it's 80k basic, 20k bonus. And it's a, it's an account management job. It's yeah. not a sales job. It's not a sales job, yeah. yeah. He said, I want a project manager to make sure the projects are, uh, you know, delivered correctly. So cultivating loyalty at the C-suite. You know, it's great, this chapter. But I sort of think, with the cultivating loyalty thing, Surely he was just going to say, just do a really good job, have integrity, work hard, you'll be fine. Doesn't that create loyalty? I wrote here, is it the salesman's job to build loyalty or the supplier's job to be sticky? Um, you know what? Well, I, I think that we're in a world where a lot of the technology that... We've got one... We use Salesforce, don't we, for CRM? Yeah, yeah. How's my loyalty to Salesforce, Mike? Well, Zero. No, your loyalty is enforced by the fact that they've got our data in such a way. Well, Salesforce is the central hub of several other parts of our technology stack as a business. Yes, yeah, so that's what we're therefore, your loyalty yes. is enforced. Therefore, yes, therefore, am I loyal to Salesforce? No. Can I leave Salesforce tomorrow? No. They are unbelievably sticky in our business. When was the last time an account manager from Salesforce rang me and asked me how I was? Can't remember. Um, therefore, actually, well, Mark Benioff doesn't care because he's been taking money off me and you every year for the last 10 years. He doesn't care. He's sat, in, he's sat on his private jet right now. Doesn't care about Mike and Johnny. He's not worried about building loyalty at the, at the IRC account. No, no. Because he's got loyalty because he's built a technology stack and a product that integrates with so many other products that we can't leave that technology stack now. I agree. Page 174, there's a certain lemming-like behaviour we see with companies calling their sales yeah, like account that. managers without giving much thought to what account and manager really mean. When these companies weight the sales commissions and bonuses of account managers to favour the pursuit and capture of new customers, the account managers adopt a sell and run mentality. He's right. Of course they do. They're not really. They're not really in the loyalty business, are they? No. And there are very few roles, like you say, where the 
the job is actually designed... This is the first one I've seen in 20 years. Yeah. That's how few there are. Well, the, the CSM roles are all designed around that. Yes, yes. Well, this is a bit further left than CSM, really. Further left? Yeah, I Got to be careful which, which hand we use in this current political climate. I don't really know exactly what you mean. I didn't yeah. mean left like... Left wing. Yeah, I meant left like... But it came out like a Freudian slip, but I know what you mean. Like a tree hugging the manager. Yeah, 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 absolutely. There's only, there's only salespeople who find that remotely funny. Uh, could we put that to my wife as you go? What, what are you two laughing at? Anyway, the next one I got onto is page 176, Steps in Cultivating Client Loyalty. And he's got a really nice loyalty staircase, figure 8.1. One, explore common ground. Two, create the initial relationship. Three, continually expand the relationship. Four, form long-term loyalty. Five, continually find ways to excel. You know, if you wanted to know how to do it, you could follow that, really. It's a good model. You could stick that on your wall. Yeah, I mean, I made a few notes here, you know, create relationship expand the relationship i think expanding is really big because it provides insurance against loss of the individual themselves out of the business very interesting isn't it because you and i have had this discussion a a few times now which is do you own the account or the individual because i always will go for the individual and i think wherever the individual goes will be all right but i think a lot of that is due to the size of our own business and therefore our ability to allocate resource to account management let's look at different way then so let's say I'm an IT software sales guy. There's an IT, there's, there's a, I don't know, um, a, 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 a young, you know, let's say 30-year-old uh, chief exec of a small company, or, or manager of his, his own business. Keep in touch with him. He, set, he sells his business to British Steel. <laughs> Listen to me. I'm listening. If I just stick with him and he ends up as chief executive, my relationship is with him. And then he goes from British Steel to another company, and another company, another company. That recruitment's a brilliant example. There's going to be certain recruiters who are just in with one chief exec, and wherever that chief exec goes, they do business with them. Correct. So that's around the individual. So do you own the, the and and, the, and you and I have this argument a lot? Is do oh, you own, about it, yeah. do, do you own the account or do you own a relationship with an individual? I think pers- my personal view is I think you should try and excel. And the point he's making is, if you're expanding your relationship inside the account sufficiently, you, people, yeah. you insulate yourself against the individual getting fired. I just and don't think you do it at a C-level exec. You know, what's interesting is I do, I, whenever I see... Well, it's a little bit like, sometimes we see it, don't we, where a, a, a senior level exec will get fired and a whole load of other people get fired Let's too. And and suppliers and 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 the call goes right into even us as a recruit. We've had it where you like, what? We're well, out yeah, of there. Well, well, Why? Because well, the new guy's brought his recruiters in. Right. He's brought his people in. So, you know that whole cultivating loyalty. It's great. Yeah, that individual in the C-suite was loyal to us. And yes, okay. Therefore, theoretically, we should land and expand into other decision makers in the account. But actually, usually he's introducing you to other people of influence that are in his circle of trust. But, yeah. Yeah, so he gets fired, booted, or walks out ignominiously at some point. Mm-hmm. You lose your account. Yeah, exactly. What's interesting, there's a new guy, relatively new, a year ago, at IFS, you know, um, ERP company. can't remember his name now. Um, I canvassed him when he got there. I thought he's going to do a lot of recruitment, this fella. He has done loads of recruitment, like ridiculous answers. Loads. Absolute loads. I would imagine he's used a recruiter, I would have thought. Yeah. They were never my account IFS. I could never quite get into them. 
This guy's come along, he's done loads of recruitment, I know he's done it through a different recruiter. So the recruitment that owned IFS, the recruitment company that had IFS as an account... Has lost a massive account. Huge amount, just because somebody came in... But somebody else has been on a gravy train for a year. Correct. And that's my point of sticking close to the people. Yeah. Anyway, what page and then he want? talks about forming long-term loyalty and about... the same page, one it too? Uh, and about uh, expecting time, how C-level individuals... And he talks a little bit about... Realising C-suite buyers are undergoing a technology-enabled shift in how they expect you to interact with them. This began in 2015 as digital natives started taking their seats at the executive table and will be a driving factor for several decades. I, I'm not 100% sure about this. You know, what he's effectively saying is, you know, you need to be always on. You've got to have your technology in line with the technology and always available and all using the latest kit and all that. And... You know, Michael, I am Mr. Tech Nerd. Yeah, very much so. Literally, th- there's not many people out there who will out-nerd me. You are very... Um, uh, and I'm all, I'm, I'm all over the technology and all over using the latest channels to market, all the latest kit. I'm worried about this, and I'm not 100% sure he's right. I think there will be an anti-technology backlash in terms of using all the latest comms stuff. I know, but his point is the younger generation. You know, let's, let's get it 100% right, Johnny. I was... Uh, today, as it happens, I was showing Lily, you know, our uh, marketing uh, person who is recording book club at the minute. I was, she said, "What do you do this weekend?" I said, "I built my Christmas tree with my with my with my Santa's secret village underneath it." You've seen it, mm-hmm. and she said, "Let's see a picture of it." So I gave her my phone, and I and I said, "We well, can see it on Facebook." She went, "I don't know how to use Facebook." Right. <laughs> so what's maddie? I mean, I'm only forty one. It's not like I'm an old giffer. So our point is. You know, if we ask Lily, which not going to do, but if we ask Lily and say, listen, Lily, do you want to speak to a chatbot or do you want to speak to a person? Because you're saying that people want to speak to people from your references, as I would do. And then if we extend that further to, like, my daughter's age, honey, 11, when she gets into being 21, 22, they're just so much more comfortable in engaging with technology as an interface yes. rather than people. Because what's interesting is in the, well, on the 17th floor... And in the lift, there was two girls talking, and there was one girl saying she's got a new job in the same company. She hadn't moved, I don't think. And she said, oh, well, it's it's an online something. And she said, well, and, the, and a mate went, oh, I bet you like that. She went, yeah, yeah, of course. Well. She, she said, well, you know, I don't like speaking to people, really. Yeah. But that's the point. So she, I mean, she wants chief exec, let's be clear, but, but she and that generation, they're just happier. You know, you look at the rise of the online banks. And so it's going to be an at, interesting Monzo, time. You know, what are Monzo saying to you? You don't need to walk into a bank. You don't need to talk to anybody. It's all done. Just do it on your just do it on your phone whilst you're on the bus. And I think that's that's what this guy's talking about, really. And I think there's yeah, some okay. Relevance and that, that's going to be a really interesting point as Honey and Izzy's generation, our kids, become CEOs. How will they engage with their suppliers? Well, like I said, you know, Honey wants to be. My daughter's called Honey. She wants to be a teacher. Let's get it right. She ends up a teacher. She'll end up a headmistress. And forty years old, somebody will try somebody and sell, will try and sell us some educational software. And how is she going to engage with them somewhere? She's going to engage with them in some form of electronic form, I think. No, obviously she's not like a... A whole bigger conversation about the future of selling, isn't it? About will we still be getting in our cars and going and seeing customers? Or will we be doing holographic telepresence, Michael? Hopefully. So anyway, so, so we're going to do the, the afterword. And then we're in the afterword, which is a massive chapter in its own right. Isn't yeah, it, really? Yeah, it's a, it's a big chapter. Well, not really. It's uh, six, four pages. Um, the big chapters of the appendix. Yes. So what's he got in the afterword? Interviews of thousands of top salespeople confirm the following challenges. 
Uh, he just sort of really gives a little summary, doesn't he? Identify the relevant exec. Determine the best approach to get to the relevant exec. Um, I wrote here on that particular point. Determine the best approach to get to the relevant exec. How cunning are you prepared to be and how badly do you want it? Yeah, I mean, you raise that point quite often. I think it's a fair one. I think what this man... You know, we, I was talking to a fellow the other week who uh, said he knew exactly where a decision-maker was going to be at a specific time on a specific day, and he engineered it so he was there. This guy would say that, I think. This guy yes. would, be, would be fond of that. But I think there's a lot... Lar- I think, I think there's a lot. Large- word cunning, people think you mean lying. No, I don't mean... Cu- well, that's I don't, what I, I think people interpret your yes. word cunning as. I, I'm talking about innate cunning, scheming thinking how am i going to find myself in well, a room well if we go back to page 109 yeah over figure 5.3 what this man would say is he'd say right have you looked at being avert have you tried to reach them yes you have jonathan that's fair enough have you tried working with the sponsor. gatekeeper well you're not going to do that and, and actually one of my clients he says this he says who does that salesperson know who knows that prospect yeah in our market technology is all very related if you wanted to get into Accenture, we must have a software vendor that deals with Accenture that could get us an invite. That's really credible. And I'm not, you know, picking on you for any other reason than to make a point, really, which is, if I said to you, Johnny, but you really want to get into Accenture, what have you done? And if I said, well, you haven't tried getting a referral from one of your software partners, I'd say, well, you haven't tried getting in there. No. And as a sales leader, you could use that as a framework to coach somebody. It'd be a great little coaching framework. What have you done with that? What have you done? Particularly, for example, in some of our clients where... You could where, write a model around that. Yeah, you, you absolutely. Could you could write a, a coaching model around it. Because you've got some of our clients where the, the where the sales guys have only got 100 portfolio accounts. Mm. And you could mm. say to them, listen, have you done that? Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you tried that? No. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, come agree. on, mate. Let's try some of the other bits. Yes, completely agree. So I'm on Appendix A, actually. So, so, so I don't know if we can read the appendices. No, really. there's so much in here. But, but the point for noting the appendices is you've got Appendix A, you've got Appendix B. Appendix A largely is about knowledge-based stuff. So it's about planning and those and those kind of things and research. It's about, as it says, the guide, to, the guide to client discovery. Appendix B is tools for building the executive relationship. Now, I think Appendix B would be a massive pile of paper that had different templates on it. There's worksheets and there's value proposition worksheets. This is, I do like about this book is um, that this is the stuff you normally have to register online and yeah, normally you have to give him your email address and get it. Blah, blah, blah. They just put it in the book. Fair uh, play. It's all in there. Yeah, uh, yeah. And furthermore, there is a cracking, at the end, recommended reading list, which I did read, that is full of really good recommended reading. If, if Literally, if, you, if all you did was read that reading list over the next two years, you'd be sharp as a razor. Mm. They're good. They're all good. Good stuff. So what do you make of the book, Johnny? I've enjoyed it, Mike, actually. I think, I'd like to think our audience can probably tell from the energy and enthusiasm of our conversation. Yeah. Um, I think that I've got some good takeaways from it. I think it's a really good book that's focused on a specific part of the sales game. And I like the fact that whilst it's very much playing at that C-level sale and the enterprise sale, he calls a few people out in the world on some of the basics. Yes, I agree. Um, and that it's grounded and realistic. So if a, if somebody rang me today and said, Johnny, um, any recommendations for books right now? I'd say, yeah, you should read that. That's, that should be on your list. My only objection is uh, not on Audible. 
Tell you what I think of it. It's an 8 out of 10. Doesn't make my top 5, but it is excellent. I'll tell you why it doesn't make my top 5 is... Still not combo prospecting. That's still my favourite of 2019. Well, the, the point about it is, is that I actually don't think many people need to sell to the C-suite. And I think you're putting in a lot of effort to sell to the C-suite. I think. I think a lot of the people, in the reality of what we do... You know, ninety-five. You know, ninety-five percent of people don't need to sell to the C-suite. I don't think. I think a lot of them sell. And there's a lot. Well, of there's there's, d- there's a difference between selling to the C-suite and engaging with the C-suite at the right point in the deal. Yeah, I just think that I, I don't think a lot of our our deals do. You know, I think if we had somebody from you know S- Salesforce on the show, they go, "Oh yeah, we sell to C-suite." C-suite yeah, C-suite, whatever, C-suite. whatever. Just don't think they do. No, and it's like I say, there's so much. So there are so many people out there selling so many solutions now that are sold as almost shadow IT that go under the radar completely from an expenditure perspective where, you know, you can trial a solution, buy it, use it for four months and change to a different supplier four months later. And nobody in the C-suite need ever know. I agree. And, th- and there's th- lots of people out there doing that where this, they'll never sell to book, the C-suite. If you're a salesperson and you read this book, you'll put the book down thinking, oh, right, I've got to sell to the C-suite now, have I? There's nobody really sat, I don't think any book of any kind, and maybe it's a snobbery thing in the book community or whatever has said, actually, do you need to sell to C-suite? Why do you need to do that? What's wrong with being a... I'm sure know, there are some so, deals somebody where... Ought to, somebody ought to write a book saying, right, what, you know, what's wrong with being a commodity supplier? You know, it's not like we deal with them, but, you know, Softcat is a prime example, I would say. They're a ridiculously successful company. Ridiculous. Martin Halliwell, the guy that set it up, never spoke to him, but obviously know his name because he, he's the man that, that did it. A monster of a behemoth of a beast where actually everybody seems to be happy. They seem to be doing very well. I don't think they sell to C-Swing. No. So what's the big deal? I think, you know, a lot of these security guys that are out there that work for... Symantec or work for McAfee. Are they selling to the C-suite? Are they hell? Are they selling to the CISO? Are they hell? They're selling to the CISO's underlings. You know, the guys at IBM that are selling, you know, these big deals or guys at BT that are selling, you know, a million pound plus deal. Are they selling to C-suite? Often not. One of those, yeah. Often not. A lot of the so, ke- a lot of the technology that's like generally keeping the lights on stuff. I think some of these big digital transformation deals, they're C-suite level conversations. But I think, I, think, yeah, I, think I, think I think they'll be driven by chief exec fed into marketing. No, I'm talking about the really big digital transformation deals. What, you mean that Lloyd's TSB one that seems to be causing them so much heartache? The, just the, it, the true transformation deals where people are really transforming process and but systems. How many of those they're driven, but as he says in the book, they're driven by the C-suite and delegated to somebody else. Yeah, yeah. And then the C-suite turn up at the last minute just to check that the money's, a, so, so, the money's not going to a book. Our, if I was one of our listeners and, and they said, should I buy the book? I said, yeah, buy it. They said, should I read the book? I said, yeah, do it. They said, and then they said, should I completely change the way that I sell and just focus on C-suite? I said, no, you've got no, to I'd, I'd, I'd sell to whoever you can get to give you money. Yeah, correct. But and, a good and, book. and it doesn't really matter. And, and your, bank, your bank manager and your kids don't care if you're selling to the C-suite yeah. or not. They just to... care that you're coming home with an order every now and then. Correct. And I don't want to knock the book because it's an excellent book. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's the end of that. The next show that we will do, we'll have Nick on the show, um, which we're really looking forward to. Uh, and we will start putting out some information on the next book. I believe the next book is Getting Things Done by David Allen. It's got to be interesting. I'm just, I'm going to have to really bite my own lip because it's been revised. 
I thought the first one was utterly terrible. The art of stress-free productivity. Yeah, I mean, it's going perfect because it's a brand new edition just for 2015. I mean, I mean perfect. Well, we'll maybe have a little think about that one. And it's got small writing and not many pictures. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Bye.